Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, first-time biographer Holly Van Leuven author of Ray Bolger, More Than a Scarecrow, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. I asked Holly what drew her to Ray Bolger, the dancer, actor, and entertainer, perhaps best known as the scarecrow character in the classic 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. I was always really interested in the musicals of the 1930s and 40s, and Ray ended up becoming this sort of guide through the history of entertainment because as I was sort of going through the research, I realized he had a career that spanned 60 years. Much of it was quite successful, and he was particularly adept at making the transitions between different kinds of media. So he went from vaudeville to Broadway, through the Hollywood system, onto television, into Las Vegas, and he was essentially taking the same skill set all the way through. And it was amazing to see just how far he could get through all these different evolutions using this routine that he had basically honed as a very young man in Boston. Okay, let's back up a little bit. All right, there's a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) You're a young person. Yes. Right? Under 30? I am under 30. Okay. So as an under 30 person, Mm -hmm. why would you even be interested in this guy who was at his peak in the 30s and 40s? Yeah, I would say, you know, he was in The Wizard of Oz. That's his claim to fame. So we don't really know him by name very much. But when you say the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, that, you know, rings some bells. So that was 1939. Mm -hmm. He became a true star on Broadway in 1936 as a solo build performer. And he actually won a Tony Award later on for a show called Where's Charlie? And that show opened in 1948. So he actually did span the 30s and 40s. And he was very prominent on television into the 60s and 70s, even just as a guest star. I mean, he was on Little House on the Prairie. He was on Battlestar Galactic. So he was really all over the place. But why my my interest, I don't know, that's a peculiarity that comes down to personality, I suppose. And I think listening to the people who gather at Bio, I think it really does start with some kind of passion and something that's particular to you. And in my case, I think there was something in that art form uh, in which I saw myself. I'm certainly not a dancer or a singer, but it was sort of what that type of art was trying to convey to people. It was an emotional resonance. And the, particularly the way that he did it was always very captivating. So I wanted to understand what is the methodology here and what was this person like and what was he interested in. And so that kind of became the gateway. And because he was known for his dancing skills, his yeah. com- comedic abilities. Yeah, comic dancing, sure. Comic dancing, definitely. Mm-hmm. How do you describe that in print? Because it's, it's one thing if you have a visual medium like video yes. or film. But in print, how do you bring a dancer to life? It's definitely a challenge. And what's interesting about Ray is that he did have a very unique style, but it also encompassed several genres of dance. So, for example, on the cover of the book, you see Ray Bolger kind of leaping into the air. Uh, I love that picture because there's sort of chairs on the back of the stage. And you can see he's well above them. So it's great for perspective of how acrobatic, really, this man was. That was actually a classic ballet move called the pas de chat. So he was not a classically trained ballet dancer, but he had just enough of that in his toolbox that he could you know, employ that at times. But the 
funny dancing that you're referencing, the kind of high kicks and the loose hips and the tripping over yourself, all of that actually was a genre of dance that we have pretty much forgotten, but it was called eccentric dance. It was particularly big in the United States in the 20s and the 30s, and that was really the time when Ray was coming up, so that's how he developed that style. There are people who will say it goes all the way back to Commedia dell'arte, but essentially it goes back to pantomime. But at the heart of eccentric dance was this necessity that the dancer had to be a character and the dance itself had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, like a complete little story. Hmm. So we actually see a lot of the moves in hip hop today. In hip hop, it's kind of divorced from the character element, but that was really what was making it eccentric at that time. So I do get into the book, um, describe what eccentric dance is in terms of some of those movements and... I try to describe them as best I can. There are definitely visuals which help, but for somebody who is so visual, it's really hard to trap that on the page. So you really have to kind of watch and analyze. And there's a really interesting saying that I've heard in the process of of researching and writing, and it's actually more of a metaphor, but a great illustrator will only use as many lines to draw something as are absolutely crucial to get the shape of it. So I feel like that was the ultimate challenge with writing about dance. Like how many lines will actually give you the shape of this person? So I really think the book in in a way is sort of a shadow of what he was in his heyday, but we are also getting farther and farther away from the time when he was very popular. So I had a, a sense of urgency about capturing some memory of him before it was totally gone. So hopefully that comes across. It does. Thank you. (laughs) That's a relief. All right. It definitely does. Um, How many of his family members uh, who are still with us were you able to interview? Yes. So Ray Bolger and his wife, Gwen, were married for 57 years. It was a really interesting marriage because Gwen was sort of a woman ahead of her time. So she really took care of the business aspect. She was very interested in show business herself. And um, they met in Los Angeles when Ray was in vaudeville there and And Gwen was attempting to become a known singer and songwriter. So unfortunately, um, Ray Bolger died in 1987. Gwen Bolger died in 1997. And they had no children. So who remains to us now are various nieces and nephews. And they're spread all over the country. And I was also very lucky to interview Ray's sister-in-law. She's passed away since the book has been published, but she was also a chorus girl in his most popular Broadway show. So she saw him from a very interesting perspective, but all told, and um, I'd say there were probably about eight or 10 all contacted together. And they each had kind of a different piece of the pie. It's like a puzzle. Exactly. It's like, well, I see this, and then somebody else over here has this. And if you get it all together, you pretty much have it. But then there's, you know, outside sources and, you know, colleagues. So, but they definitely help enrich it. It's really amazing, some of the stories they have. In the book, you quote from Ray Bolger a lot. Yes. Where did those quotes come from and how much access did you really have to his papers? So there are some really good resources that were available. And I thought it was important that we get a sense of Ray's voice because he did have a very particular style in speaking and in writing. And in speaking, he had a Boston accent that never left him. If you watch The Wizard of Oz, you might wonder, why does this character have a Boston accent? Well, nobody could get it out of him. But he gave a wonderful oral history in the, I want to say the early 70s, the exact date is escaping me. And it was a very comprehensive 
interview that went all the way through his vaudeville career and his Broadway career. And it was really impressive. I mean, over the course of research, you realize, oh, he missed some dates and some names and things like that. But to basically see this man at the end of his life recounted as he did was just so hugely helpful. And then I had the great fortune to see Ray Boulder's personal papers that were donated to UCLA. And I was able to do that because um, one of the nieces was actually able to put me in touch with the lawyer who had donated the collection. And so that was the access in. And thankfully, Ray and Gwen liked to write. So there was plenty of material to look at. There were letters and they liked to take notes on legal pads. So whether Gwen was kind of thinking of a script idea for a television appearance for Ray, she would have her thoughts there. And Ray liked to talk through things too. He also liked to write sort of his historical recollections of the things he saw in vaudeville or at the palace in New York in the 20s. So there was really a kind of a, a good amount of information from very interesting parts of their lives. I mean, they got married right before the stock market crash of 1929. So that was kind of memorable. And I like to recount stories of that. You know, I think it's also lucky. And I, I, it's been a topic of conversation here. But this idea that there was still a kind of analog world of paper and pencil and sit and put your thoughts down in ways that maybe we do that now through text message or email, but it's not as tangible. So I was lucky that he is of that world where he was interested in it, but it was also part of the culture. So there was a lot. <laughs> you mentioned something about um, his papers. Now, were they closed at UCLA? Because you said you had to, to get access to his no. lawyer. They had been donated and they were stored since the donation. And as it was explained to me, when the papers first arrived, they looked to see if there was any material from the Wizard of Oz and they could not find anything. And so at the time, juggling with their other priorities and whatever was going on, they deemed that the collection was not worth processing. And from the preliminary research I had done, I suspected that there might be something more valuable than they were aware of. And thankfully, it became almost something that we did together because they did let me in very early as things were kind of being um, cataloged and arranged. But at the end of kind of the first big part of the work, one of the archivists made a point to say, you know, I was kind of stubborn about this, but this is a really rich collection and we're really glad that we did this now. But you just never know. There's just so many scenarios where things are in peculiar places or peculiar <laughs> situations. Uh, when was he born? He was born in 1904. And he died, you say, in 1987? 1987, yes. Uh, obviously, if you talk about Ray Bolger, the first thing that pops to most people's minds is the Wizard of Oz. Yes, if they make that, if they remember that, yeah. <laughs> if they remember, which is hit or miss at this point in time, okay, admittedly. That, but that's fair. Yeah. But how did he view that? Because if you say his name and depending on your age and, and access, yeah. that's all you think about in terms of Ray Bolger. So exactly. how did he view the success of that film? Ray Bolger was not the typical Wizard of Oz cast member. And I say that only because it was very difficult to make. There were very hot lights involved because they wanted to get the Technicolor to show just the right way. Crazy costumes. I mean, Ray actually fared pretty well. Poor Jack Haley was basically in a tin can the whole time. Um, you know, the lion costume, etc. So it was just really kind of grueling working conditions for these guys. And the kinds of lights they were using would actually basically suck up the oxygen on the set. So like, everything was just really, really difficult and tedious. And they weren't all that happy with it some of the time. Ray Bolger um, really didn't complain about that as much as, say, um, Jack Haley or Bert Lahr would later on. But um, Ray Bolger had a sense, he would say, when he was making the film that it would probably go on to be something only because so much of what they wanted to do had to be invented, some of the effects, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he was always very proud to be associated with the film. In his later years, he would go on late night television shows. And of course, they would talk your legacy, et cetera. And one question he got asked more than once was, 
did you receive any residuals for the Wizard of Oz? And the way that Ray Bolger would respond to that question was, I received no residuals, just immortality. And I'll settle for that. <laughs> but to backtrack, I think Ray really perceived himself to be a Broadway guy. And that's kind of the case I try to make in the book, because for the most part, it's really true. I mean, he was coming up in a really a golden age of the musical. And he achieved what was his ultimate goal, which was to get top billing and share it with nobody. And to him, that was the ultimate. He had this really hard scrabble life. He came from working class Boston. He came from a broken family. He wasn't really in a theatrical family or a dance family or an arts family by any stretch of the imagination. And so, so much of performing for him was a way out of poverty and a way out of strife. And it was just about survival. And so... I think those instincts stayed with him so that to him, being on that top bill and being able to entertain people night after night to really have their attention, that was the ultimate goal. That was almost a survival instinct. And I think probably more than anything, whether he was totally aware of it or not, he was definitely a vaudevillian in that sense of they would do the same act forever if it could bring joy to people. It was always kind of about being a living person, entertaining other living people, and I think getting them through the difficulties that he had experienced in his own life. Okay. What drew you to biography? Because most younger people, they may read biography, yeah. but to write one. <laughs> it was a really interesting circumstance because, to your point, I would go read those biographies. And Bert Lahr had a wonderful one that his son John Lahr wrote for him. And there were many Judy Garland biographies. And Jack Haley published a memoir in his lifetime. There was never anything about Ray Bolger. So I was always kind of curious about that. And it's interesting now because I hear from people who have read the book and they were basically of the same persuasion. They were young people looking for information about Ray Bolger. Like, I thought I was the only one. Who knew? <laughs> but it was really a desire. I was always a very curious person. Having grown up with the internet, that gave me a really early start to learning how to research. I was always kind of ferreting information out. And so those were my proclivities anyway. And so couple that with just this very youthful enthusiasm to find a story of a person who, you know, it seemed like a very inspiring guy. And, th and that element of mystery of, well, why don't we know anything about him? So it was partly that. I was also interested in writing from a young age. I went to Emerson College for writing and publishing. I began this project really when I was um, getting my bachelor's degree there. It came together in a really serendipitous way. It's not really like there were classes for biography because there weren't. But um, Megan Marshall was one of my professors teaching memoir, for example. Uh, another one of my professors who really uh, helped me and inspired me was Murray Schwartz, who wrote a biography of the dancer Pearl Primus. So a lot of this was kind of converging. And at the same time, I was getting a sense that, you know, it might be really interesting to write about somebody who had a full life. I didn't feel like I had experienced enough to obviously write a memoir or anything like that, but I was interested in nonfiction as opposed to fiction. And I was also interested in long form. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, there might be really something that could be told here. And when I realized that there was a story that had been neglected for so long, it just was really a, a sort of serendipitous re uh, union there. Um, you have Ray Bolger mm -hmm. and you have Fred Astaire. Yes. And what's really interesting is that Ray Bolger was considered if you will, there was a term that was basically called the Irish princes. And the Irish princes, sort of like eccentric dance, uh, they had a history and they had a lineage. And so Ray was learning tap in Boston. He was Irish. It was not true that he was Portuguese. That was a rumor I found on the internet a long time ago. Um, but he was being influenced by the styles in his community. And that was predominantly tap. Tap was something that he could learn basically through mimicry. He could watch and he could listen and he could just repeat, repeat, repeat until he could pick it up. And so that was really what he was able to do. So 
that also feeds into this idea of well, what is Ray Boulder's style? Because he has this eccentric element, he has the tap element, he has a little bit of ballet in there, and so he really was this combination of things that was particular to him. He had a style that he developed basically by co-opting parts, but not all of a more traditional style. Whereas I think with Astaire, you see that he's just so incredibly smooth, and he also did have some ballet in his experience as well. But Astaire was all about tap, whereas Ray Bolger was more about the effect of what the dance would do. And you talk about Ray, say, as a younger person picking up stuff on the street. Yes. Um, Did he have any problems with interacting with, say, black dancers? That's a great question. So, of course, there is such a rich history of tap, both on the African-American style and, of course, the Irish style. But at that time in Boston, there were both communities and there was some degree of crossover. And at one time, the Irish were a marginalized community as well, not to the extent, but there was that same sort of, you know, we don't want you here. And so I think there was a kind of unity in that. And that's probably helped promote some of the, you know, cross-pollination, if you will, between these different styles and with these different influences. But I would say at that time, they were all sort of working together in Boston. There were different communities, of course, but it were the same performers basically trying to break in. Um, So that definitely would have been an influence and that would have been something that he would have absolutely been participating in. When I first, you know, picked up this project, I knew, of course, he was in The Wizard of Oz, and I started to say, oh, he was, you know, in other movies, he was on Broadway. But I think I figured he must have had some kind of background that had supported this. And when I really look at how strange it was that he became this, that he was using dance as a way out of a lot of problems, and that he ended up becoming this star, if you will, from it, it's just really, really improbable. But I think it was also you know, a time and a place where that was possible in some ways. There was a certain amount of mobility if you fought hard enough in particular ways. So, yeah, it's just really interesting to see how that all blends together. So as a first-time biographer moving into this genre, what was uh, most memorable or difficult? I feel like just the idea at a certain point that you're going to write about somebody's entire life can be so daunting. And I think that helped me keep an open mind to what I was about to encounter, particularly because, you know, going in the archives, the whole reason for doing it the way I did was that nobody knew what was in there. So I had to be pretty open to the possibility that there could be nothing in there. It could be just a bunch of, you know, junk mail or receipts or something. We just really didn't know. So keeping an open mind was definitely critical, but it was scary to think like, oh my gosh, this is just a huge project. But I was lucky because right at the beginning of my research was actually when I found the first bio conference that I ever attended, which was 2012 Los Angeles before I lived there. And it was wonderful to have that kind of resource. So I would say... You know, I was in it. It was scary, but it was wonderful to know that there was a community there. And then in terms of other difficulties, I would say trying to find balance because, you know, when you're working with a subject who's very well regarded and who has a particular kind of affectionate association, you know, a lot of people are very fond of that scarecrow character and it reminds them of childhood and positive emotions and all kinds of things where, you know, when you take the, the mask off the scarecrow, who's underneath it? So, you know, you've, you've got wonderful accounts from his contemporaries and some of those might not be flattering because of the time and place where they were working. They were in hard conditions or you have the perspective of relatives who only saw him as Uncle Ray. And it's really, it's a, it's a hard task, but it's totally necessary and very worthwhile to say, okay, 
we have to balance, you know, these different aspects of who he was. Mm -hmm. And so putting that together in a fair way and doing it in something that was, you know, true of the spirit of his life and what he was actually doing and what he actually cared about for good and for bad. Um, I would say that's probably the most difficult because you're always worried, oh, someone's not going to like this, but that's life, right? <laughs> that is life. <laughs> in terms of what you're working on next, do you have plans for another biography? Yeah, I definitely want to continue in the genre. There are some characters, if you will, who in interest me greatly and people from different walks of life. I think what is so tricky for me in this situation is that I had such a strong desire and I was so driven to complete this biography and I credit that um, half joking half not to youthful enthusiasm so <laughs> sometimes it feels like that youthful enthusiasm was spent you know it's kind of like first love they say it's never like that again so I don't know I'm looking for the project that gets me maybe if not all the way there at least maybe 75% of what it felt like to say oh this has to to go out in the world so I'm feeling different things out and we'll see where they go. But I would say it will always be important to preserve what you care about. And so as foolhardy as it may sound, I would absolutely encourage young biographers to do that because if it's not them, it might not be anybody else and that story might be lost. And here's Holly Van Leuven reading from her book, Ray Bolger, More Than a Scarecrow, at BIO's annual conference in May 2019. I'll start by mentioning that in 2014, I had the honor of receiving the first Bio Hazel Rowley Prize for Best Proposal for a First-Time Biographer, and I am equally delighted, humbled, and shocked to bring you the finished book to the conference this year. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your support. It would not have happened without you. For the cover of this book, I chose a photo of Ray Bolger rehearsing the Broadway show By Jupiter. It was the last original musical put together by Rodgers and Hart. It should be noted that both before and after his appearance in The Wizard of Oz as the Scarecrow, Ray Bolger was a Broadway star. He also had a very tough but loving and supportive wife of 57 years, Gwen, and they all figure into this little section about the demise of By Jupiter. By Jupiter could have enjoyed several hundred more performances, but Bolger informed the company in May 1943 that he would be leaving the show, citing exhaustion. Buster West was floated as a possible replacement, but in the end, the show could not continue without its original star. The entire cast was outraged by the news, but no one more so than Richard Rogers. In his eyes, Bolger was destroying a successful show out of selfishness. Responding to an announcement of the show's impending closure in Ed Sullivan's Little Old New York column for the New York Daily News, he sent a rebuttal, which Sullivan published. He wrote, By Jupiter is shuttered, so Bolger is a loafer. I read it in your column, but it's stuff you shouldn't go for. <laughs> Let's read that line correctly. Here's the way it should be uttered. Bolger is a loafer, so by Jupiter is shuttered. P.S. Gross last week, $21,655. Performers out of work, nearly 100. Love, Richard Rogers. <laughs> by Jupiter closed on June 12, 1943, after 427 performances. Despite the public backlash for his perceived laziness, Bolger kept up his facade. 
Variety reported that Bulger was headed to Hollywood for recuperation, stopping along the way at the Marine base in the Mojave Desert to entertain troops. In reality, this was a practice run for Bulger's next stint in the USO. Ray Bulger vacationing at Arrowhead, intent on staying in California all summer, Variety said on June 30th. Three days later, unbeknownst to the media, Bulger boarded a military plane in San Francisco bound for Hawaii. He was now the manager and one half of Camp Show number 89. He and British-born comic and pianist Little Jack Little would tour the South Pacific, the first entertainers to do so. Gwen, Bulger's wife, stayed at her mother's home in the Fairfax section of Los Angeles and began writing letters the moment after Bulger's departure, informing her inner circle of the truth. In her message to their good friend Meyer Davis, the band leader, she wrote, I don't think Mr. Rogers will be writing any more jingles for a while. I wonder if he has the grace to be embarrassed. That was author Holly Van Leuven reading from her book, Ray Bolger, More Than a Scarecrow, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Van Leuven's book reading and interview were recorded during BIO's May 2019 conference held in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C., Enzo De Palmer created our theme music, and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great day. Music